This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Stacey Ulbig, who's the author of Angry Politics, Partisan Hatred and Political Polarization Among College Students, which is incredibly topical. Um, This is published in 2020, I believe, by the University Press of Kansas, and it goes through a discussion of how we got to maybe some of our current polarization and antagonist antagonistic behavior in politics and maybe some of the origins that it has in uh, where we what we did on college campuses um, and what we learned there as our sort of training ground for citizenship. Uh, but I'm going to let Stacey tell us all about that. I'd like to welcome Stacey Ulbig to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Stacey. Hi, thanks for having me on today. Uh, my name is Stacy Olbig. I am an, a, a full professor at Sam Houston State University. Before I have taught at Sam Houston State, I taught at Missouri State, which was very similar, large state school. And in the interim, I, I was lucky enough to get to visit the U.S. Air Force Academy on a visiting position for a couple of years. And I've run into a range of students across these campuses. And in the classroom and just in speaking to them informally outside of class, a lot of what they said kind of motivated me to ask the questions I was asking. Uh, I typically teach attitudes and behavior and media and politics. And as you might imagine, these questions come up often in, in those classes. So I thought I would try to do a little study of undergraduate students and see where their attitudes were standing. And I engaged in this project, started it way back in what seems like forever, I'll call it BC, like my students do before COVID, um, in 2015. And so it was not only before COVID, but it was before Trump made his run. And so it's surprising to me the patterns that I saw that since then have intensified. And, and what you look at, you know, again, we sort of situate ourselves in our current situation with regard to this antagonistic politics that's all around us, um, the symbolic politics that's all around us. Um, and part of what you are sort of drawing out in the research is like, where did this come from? Um, and so your, your data and your surveys of students is kind of trying to get at like, what is the experience they have? discussing and engaging in politics in college. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what the surveys were and and to some degree what the research that you generated, what surprised you and what what sort of co- conclusions you were like, yeah, that makes sense. A lot of people have had previous to, to my embarking on this project and still are talking about affective polarization and the typical measures are things like the feeling thermometers about the parties and, and the actors in politics that we often talk about. And also things like just general feelings toward 
members of the other party, ordinary citizens from the other party, and how much people might be willing to live next door to them or have a family member marry one of them. So we, there were some pretty f- interesting findings about this nationwide with nationwide samples, populations of adults. And so I became curious about, first of all, whether the normal affective uh, polarization measures played out the same way among college students who have, at this period of time, were typically uninterested, fairly apathetic, and didn't follow politics much at all, uh, were completely focused on entertainment media and not news media. And so I, I expected them not to express as much of that sort of thing, and, and I found out that they do express a good deal of it, more than I thought of the typical affect of polarization. I was also interested in trying to develop some new measures to, to kind of get behind what's going on there. What is motivating people to say, I don't want to live next door to somebody, or I hate that party so much? So I started reading broadly about in-group, out-group measure, measurements of hatred across party or group lines. And I found some real interesting studies in comparative and IR, uh, the fields of comparative and IR, where they would look at, well, as you might imagine, the folks that study genocide or study ethnic conflict. They have done a bit of this research. And so I basically used their measures as a jumping off point. There was um, an interesting study done in 2012, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce some of the names, so I apologize to these folks, Halper and Canetti and Kimmy, uh, who studied the Middle East, and they were looking at the ethnic feeling across ethnic relations uh, between Israelis and and members of the Islamic movement. And they had created some what they called chronic ethnic hatred and immediate ethnic hatred items. And I tweaked those and made them partisan chronic hatred and immediate hatred. The chronic measures were more the stuff we typically think of. They're long-term ingrained socialized attitudes, in my case, about the other party. The immediate hatred items focused more on visceral physical reactions to short-term events. So when something happens in the news, does it increase your blood pressure, make you sweat, make you want to swing a fist at someone? Uh, and it asks about those sorts of things. Now, obviously, these two are correlated, immediate and chronic. The chronic is sort of the underlying low simmering kind of intensity of feeling toward the other side. And the immediate is the flashpoint kind of reaction. So I converted some of their measures that asked things like, how many times have you had thoughts of a desire to kill or destroy members of the other side in any kind of manner? And I didn't expect to see very high percentages of students telling me they wanted to do that. And I was, it's not overwhelming, but it was surprising to me. We have a very friendly college campus here. Students don't like to argue. They're polite. They're mostly Southern. So they're very kind of that uncomfortable with conflict. So I was surprised that they were reporting this, especially all those years ago. And the students reported sort of this, this, anger or animosity towards other people. And, and, you know, I understand what you're saying because I, I teach in Wisconsin and, uh, you know, there's a Midwest nice kind of, um, uh, stereotype and so forth. And, and my students are very, very nice, but they're also very, very much opposed to each other politically. Um, and, and so I was curious in these findings to know that some of them in fact want to slug the other people. And, and you also talk about this in context of the fact that when we are, when students are in college, this is, again, a place where you are sort of training to be a full citizen. So the, the sort of behavior and comportment and thinking that goes on there is something that you're going to take with you as you leave and you enter into full citizenship in the country, if you will. How did the students think about that transition and what they were learning um, or feeling um, in regard to politics in these settings? In the study, I didn't ask specific questions about that to, to my sample. Now, there's been other research that was done, and I talk about some of that um, in the concluding chapter. 
there's been some studies done that suggest that students say that they are experiencing self-censorship on campus because they are afraid of the conflict uh, or they're afraid of retribution by either their peers or by their professors. Uh, surprisingly, they're more afraid of the peer shunning than, than any sort of academic penalty from faculty, which I found at least heartening from a faculty member's standpoint that, that the students nationwide aren't reporting that faculty are shutting them down when they want to express contrary opinions, but that they are, because they feel like they might be, create conflict, they might hurt someone's feelings, or they might lose a friend over something, they tend not to express themselves. And, and so therefore, they don't seem to engage very well in critical conversations with especially with people from the other side or with differing opinions. And this is something that a colleague and I worked on at the when I was at the Air Force Academy for a little while. Uh, she and I thought it would be interesting to see if we could take a class of under, a groups of underclassmen, freshmen and sophomore who are at the Air Force Academy. So I'll admit, a fairly selective group of undergrads at that point, but they still had trouble with this. They still had trouble speaking to each other in a classroom and having an uncomfortable conversation about politics, current affairs. Part of their training to be officers there is to be able to do that in a civil manner. So we incorporated a little experiment into the introductory American government courses, American government national security courses they're all required to take there. And we discovered that when they are taught strategies to engage their peers in conversations about which they might disagree uh, in that they were able to learn the strategies such as the importance of body language when you're listening to someone else, the importance of not reading too much into somebody else's body language, the idea that you might want to ask questions rather than jump to assumptions, and that you have to realize that sometimes if someone else jumps to a conclusion or shows an emotion, not to shut down, to try to pursue what's going on. And we found that it worked. There was a significant difference between the groups that weren't taught these skills and, and allowed to practice them and those that didn't when conversations came up in class. Um, a couple of conversations were staged, so we were able to track, have similar conversations in, in different sections. We were surprised by the findings, um, and it works better to some degree if they're senior peers teach them the skills instead of the professor conveying this is how you have a conversation. So we, we are pretty excited about that, but we recognize the limited ability to implement that. But I think that is kind of what college is in part supposed to be teaching us, is that when we go to college, we run into people that aren't like us, and we're supposed to learn how to engage with them and to figure things out and to work with others in a way that may involve compromise. It may involve disagreement. It may be walking away and not having convinced someone. And you have to learn how to deal with that. I think that, unfortunately, there's been some trends on colleges campuses that may be trending against those tendencies that, that we're walking on the eggshells shells a bit about a lot of things. And who can blame us all? I mean, we are, we do live in the real world, and the real world is scary right now. So um, I that's part of what motivated me, too, is that it's part of what I love about this job is being able to have contrary conversations with people and to explore ideas. And when that gets shut down, I get very nervous and, and uh, uncomfortable. That makes you uncomfortable, as opposed to having the conversations that that generally feel uncomfortable in the midst of those conversations themselves. And certainly our students, you know, I hear this from students as well. Um, and I didn't do a systematic study, but um, you know, I understand we have these, com we have these critiques now about like, you know, what can be said in classrooms, what can't be said in classrooms, you know, um, trigger warnings and, and so forth that, you know, are kind of policing the classroom space um, and the engagement um, of different ideas. Um, that's why I found your book really fascinating. It's like, oh, this is like coming at it on a different path. Um, but it's, it's, it's still doing some of the same consideration, um, with regard to how we teach and, and what critical thinking skills are and how you can, you know, master them and not agree with people. Um, 
And so I wanted to ask you, because you're also, as you as you noted, you're also an expert on media and politics, is where does the media intersect with all of this good stuff? Yeah, I spent a chapter on that. You can't ignore the media if you're going to talk about polarization and you're going to talk about, um, you know, affect, negative affect across party lines. So I did, I included a few very simple measures of media consumption on the uh, survey instrument that I administered in, in to the undergraduate students. And it, it, I wish I had had better measures in retrospect, but that's usually the case when we do these sorts of studies, where, you know, after the fact, tomorrow me is brilliant, but yesterday me wasn't. So I included measures of various uh, forms of media, all the way back to traditional print newspapers, which I don't even think students know what those look like anymore. But in 2015, we still had an on-campus readership program where the newspapers were available and used in classes. So that was part of the reason I included them. But I also included other forms of media, including television and cable news, as well as social media. Now, my social media, the two social media sources that I included at the time were internet news because that's where they were shifting for their newspaper and television news was the internet and blogs, which at the time were what they were looking at. But of course, now that shifted completely to pure social media, to things like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and everything else. Um, Snapchat and TikTok is apparently now big. So yeah, something I'm learning from my students this semester is how TikTok has become very political. So uh, potentially a future study. Uh, but what I noticed was, as we might expect, those who consumed newspapers, either online or print ones, tended to be have less animosity toward the other side and were, were less... Uh, fast to pull the trigger on violence toward the other side. I support pulling by, or support violence toward the other side. So the argument has always been that when traditional print media sources that are kind of national or very mainstream have tended to be a little more balanced. So you incidentally run into opinions you might not agree with. You incidentally run into news you might not normally be reading. And there's a little bit of evidence of that, although I don't have the greatest measures to pick up on that in a, in a more fine-grained way. I found that the television and cable news was sort of the intermediate level of animosity, per, was correlated with an intermediate level. And as we might guess, the social media was the highest. And it triggered most consistently and most strongly feelings of what I call hatred or animosity toward the other side and feelings of wanting to harm the other side physically. So social media, I, I picked up on the beginning trend of social media kind of stoking the fires and it was already going on. So I wasn't surprised, but what it's become since I think has, has just exploded in, in the interim since the book was written. I'm teaching a media and politics class this semester, and they constantly bring, I had, didn't have them read the book, but when I tell them about it, they're like, yeah, that doesn't sound right. I can't believe it was ever not bigger than this. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And and I, I I this is a question I ask at the end of the of the interview. It's not the end of the interview, but is this like the next project that you're going to be working on? It's not the one that I have in mind that I'm currently working on and collecting data on. But the next time I teach the media class, and I actually have a couple of students in the class this semester who are doing honors contracts and independent study courses on that topic. So they're doing their own informal kind of convenient sample study of this to get a read on this campus anyway. And so depending on what they find and what they tell me in their research and our conversations, it very well might be at least a, a side project that may not turn into a whole nother book, but it could be interesting to look at. Uh, I think that just the different forms of social media and the creative ways they're being used is amazing. Um, yeah. So absolutely. Okay. So my next question is because we talked about the media and, and you are in the research, you're looking at, you know, what college students are thinking and doing and engaging and, and what makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, how do they connect that to sort of partisanship and the parties themselves? 
if I'm understanding where you're headed here, it, the idea is that I asked them in one uh, set of questions, sort of the typical feeling thermometer toward the other party, toward the other party's presidential can most recent presidential candidates or the president in office, depending. And I also asked them about living next door to people from other parties and, and what if a close family member married one. And it was the same patterns we see nationwide. Uh, showed up. They have incredibly negative feelings about the out party. They may not love their own party, but they certainly like it a lot better than the other. Uh, same thing with the candidates from each party. And this seemed to have an effect on how, how much they were willing to compromise with the other side. So I asked them a question about whether they were willing to give up some of what their side wanted to the other side in order to get something done. So I had them kind of say on a, on a scale of one to a hundred where zero is the other side gets nothing and a hundred is where your side gets nothing or vice versa. I forget how I worded it, but where would you put this? So 50 would be a 50, 50 split. And it was amazing. They looked so much like the adult American public and a lot like Congress when it comes to the willingness to compromise those who were self-declared, self-identified Democrats, of course, put the compromising point in their favor. And the Republicans put it in their favor. The independents nailed the middle, but there are very few, few pure independents out there among the sample like there are in the public. The tendency was the same on both sides of the political aisle. The average amount of compromise in my own party's favor was about the same whether the person was a Democrat or a Republican. So this isn't a one-sided, asymmetric sort of tendency. It's going on in both parties. Um, at any given moment, given the issue, I suspect that the points may diverge a little more depending on the issue and the press of the day. But I had a single snapshot, and this was a generic question, not about any particular policy compromise. I, I I guess I wanted to ask you, because part of what you're trying to do in in sort of unearthing college students' understanding of themselves in this in this sort of partisan vortex um, is is like, do they think that like, okay, after I leave college, I'm gonna have to like work in this world where I'm gonna be mad all the time? Yeah, I didn't ask anything specific about that, but the questions about whether they would want to live next to the other party and, and have a family member marry. So I always tell my students when I explain this, this result in class, think about it like, would you want to sit around the Thanksgiving table with somebody from the other party? Because that's what happens when you, a close family member marries. And it kind of puts, it makes them realize why people might say no. And I saw this among my students. There was a tendency to say it, the more strongly they reported hating the other side, either immediate or chronic, the more likely they were they, they were to say, I don't really like the idea of living next door to somebody from that out party, or I don't like the idea of a close family member marrying someone. They were, however, far more open to that than the general adult American public, the, the general nationwide samples. So I think that was hopeful for me. That was one really positive takeaway was these, these tendencies don't seem to be as, or didn't seem to be as strong. I wonder if I repeated this study today, if they'd be stronger among the young person sample. And my guess is they would. And I wonder if that's in what, in part, what we're picking up on on our campuses is they're starting to self-isolate and sort on campus like adults are doing out in society. That, that, that what was the book by Bill Bishop, The Big Sort, that talked about that. We move into communities based on the people that will be around us. And we move out of communities based on people who move in, that sort of thing. Uh, so I wonder if that's beginning to happen on campus and that some of campus policies might have changed in ways that allow the students more easily to self-sort and not run into people in the dorm or in the residence halls, as they're called now, uh, in from that disagree with them. I just wonder about that. I have no empirical evidence at all. It's just I'm, my curiosity. Students today, when I show them these results, they are surprised that the gaps weren't bigger, that the parties, that the students back then weren't more willing to say, no, I don't really want to be around them because their sense anecdotally is that, you know, my friends tell me that sort of thing that when they get out, they don't want to live in a neighborhood like their parents. 
And it's not got to do with not having amenities. It's got to do with the sorts of people they run into in the neighborhood. So I think that's interesting. And, and and some of it may also be that the students themselves are sorting to different kinds of colleges and universities. That's very much the case, I think it could well be. Yeah, that, you know, obviously the different universities attract different sorts of students, not only socio-demographic, but the idea that it's, if you have a certain interest, you go to some colleges more than others. If you are a certain type of student in terms of I really love the the arts and humanities versus science, STEM. You're going to go to different places. Absolutely. Um, And we see that especially at the grad level, I would think, where you really specialize even more and you get different personality sorts into different disciplines. We see it as faculty for sure. And and so you have, you have, you know, this, this great study. Can you talk a little bit about how you pulled the data together um, in terms of the methodology, the survey, um, your research team, um, how, how your sample worked, um, and, and just a little bit about, you know, sort of the, the geeky social science stuff. Yeah, I was surprised anybody wants to talk about that. So it's very exciting to talk numbers with somebody. Uh, it was, I, and I will admit, it's not a nationwide undergraduate sample. Uh, working at a 3-3 teaching university, I'm sure many of your listeners can relate, you don't have the same opportunities to draw in big grants and spend the time doing that sort of thing. Uh, With online polling now, there's a lot more options for that. And with the really nice samples we can get from various sources for online polling of representative samples. So if I redo something like this, it will be a much better sample, much broader. I focused on my own campus because I have access to it. Now, Sam Houston State is a state university in Texas. We're about an hour, 78 miles north of Houston, a couple of hours, two and a half hours south of Dallas now. The cities are getting closer each day. Uh, They're growing toward us. But we draw from the rural East Texas, Western Louisiana area and the major cities of Dallas and and Houston mostly. But we also get a good share of -of out-of-staters who come here, not just from Louisiana. So we get a fairly good mix of students on campus. And when I say a good mix, I mean whether they're urban or rural. Their income levels vary quite a bit. Their academic um, qualifications coming in vary quite a bit. We get some of the best students that I would see anywhere, and we get some of the worst I would see anywhere. So we get that. And we also get a lot of um, racial and ethnic diversity, which is very helpful. And we get, for studies like this and for other reasons, but we get a lot of mix across party and ideology lines because we're pulling from urban and rural and from different states, we do get a fairly good mix. And traditionally, when I have done small scale studies on campus of random samples of students, it, the the profile, the the distribution of partisanship and ideology reflects the nation pretty well and reflects Texas extremely well. Now, your listeners are thinking, oh, but Texans are so conservative and so Republican. And granted, Texas is such. However, I can say that in 2015, we were less so. And we've had a growing Democratic presence in the state. Um, And on campus, we've traditionally had about 40% that rate themselves as conservative and leaning or weak or strong Republican. And then about 30% calling themselves liberal or democratic. And then we get about 30%-ish, so the other 30% independent, and they'll split about evenly between each side and a very slim, typical 10% or so stay purely independent. Most of the students report who remain purely independent and won't lean, can't be pushed toward either party, want to claim themselves as libertarians, which I think is a whole other interesting thing to be explored that I didn't explore in this study. So To give you an idea of the population from which my sample was drawn, that's what it looks like. Um, I drew a sample from the introductory American and history and American and Texas government classes because they are gen ed requirements at our school. Every student who goes to a Texas school takes six hours in history and six hours in political science. And so it's a nice cross section of all students on campus. You get them from all majors, you get them of all ages, although the sample will be skewed toward the underclassmen, the the lower level underclassmen, typically freshmen and sophomores. We get a pretty good smattering of juniors and seniors in there too, though. 
So it was a good sample of people of all different sorts, students of all different sorts, who came to this university. And I had the cooperation of professors in those classes to offer to recruit for me. They could do whatever they wanted with the results in their class after I collected the data and gave it to them. So a lot of them incorporated it into lessons they were teaching throughout the semester or the next semester. So they uh, gave the information about the study to their students and the students then volunteered to take an anonymous online survey. Uh, It was a one shot. It wasn't a panel design or or a repeated uh, samples design of any sort. So it was a one shot sample. And I came up with a fairly large sample that was was representative of the campus population, which is representative of most um, campuses nationwide. We probably have a little more racial diversity in this and ethnic diversity in this sample than a sample of students nationwide would show. And we are, as most colleges are becoming this day, more heavily female than male. Women have overtaken men in the colleges, and the same was the case here. So those, I would say, were the two biggest skews. And then the slight skew towards slightly more conservative undergraduate students than you would see at most campuses, and certainly at some way more conservative than you might see, because other campuses are likely to be far more liberal in their student identities. So that's kind of how I did it. I collected the data um, from that sample. I ended up with a sample size. I want I can't remember the exact number. It was close to 800. And it was representative of the uh, Institutional Research Department report on what the campus population looked like that year. So I was pretty happy with the sample. I would have loved if I could have had repeated samples on other sorts of campuses, like you said, especially at different types of schools. I could have had a set of liberal arts schools, small liberal arts. I could have had a set of big state schools. Uh, I could have had a set of private schools, set of religious schools. Something like that would be really interesting. And at one time, I thought I could recruit uh, faculty members at conferences to replicate the study, and I could replicate it here. And then COVID came, and I don't see any colleagues at conferences anymore. So hopefully, I can get back to that and recruit a few, and maybe we can all do it. Yeah, the COVID got in the way of a lot of stuff. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, and so, I, I again, I was really fascinated by this. As you say, you sort of like your sample size does reflect a lot of the sort of partisan demographics of Texas in particular, but not exclusively. Um, and and so you also you sort of the latter half of the book, you talk about the political and social consequences of partisan hatred. And we've talked a little bit about sorting and isolating um, and, you know, some of these questions about um, what is allowable on campus these days and you know, sort of rising discussion about, you know, freedom of speech on campus and who does and doesn't have it or maybe everybody is self-censoring. But what are some of the other consequences that you saw from analyzing this kind of thermostatic um, affective feelings about uh, the other party? I think we've hit on most of the big ones, the the marriage and um, the intermarriage and the neighbors issue. I also got uh, qualitative comments that I didn't spend a lot of time on in the book and only talked about them. I didn't quote any of them. I just talked about them to flesh out the numbers. And students were telling me things like, I've never really thought about it, but I have to say that when I rented my apartment, looking back, I recognized that, that who was living there and the kinds of cars that were in the parking lot or the music I heard when I drove up. And I think those are the sorts of indicators that... Uh, in the Bishop book, Bill Bishop talks about people don't necessarily do their research on how the neighborhood voted in the last election, but they can tell by driving through the neighborhood. They pick up on things, especially if it's an election year, and they see yard signs and things like that. But also just that con- the consumers 
of the different parties like different things. And so if there are certain shops in a neighborhood, it indicates the leaning of that community. Students were reporting that sort of thing too, that this apartment complex was close to um, a Starbucks and that one was close to a bar, but that one was close to five churches. And so I chose this one instead of that one because it seemed like people like me would live here. And so I was picking up on some of that in their comments that I didn't spend time on in the book. And I hear that from my students all the time when I ask them where they live and who did they hear run into today. And it's funny, I think that they do that and they don't even know they're doing it. And when I pointed out to them that what we just read is what they're doing, they're like, I never thought of that. That's weird. It sneaks up on you. And I said, yes, it does. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I was surprised a little bit, too, by the compromise findings. I thought they would be better. I mean, they're in college. They're learning how to, you have to, you get a roommate. You got to learn a compromise on the dirty dishes at some point. And so I was kind of surprised that just cooperation didn't come as easily to them. But I don't know why I should be surprised. I have nieces and nephews and they weren't cooperative when they were younger. So I get it, right? Um, I think the older I get, the more I forget how stupid I was and how uncompromising I was when I was younger. So it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise me, but it does. Um, it did, I should say. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else. Did you notice anything else in particular that you're thinking of? Cause I, I can't remember now. Well, I mean, I was, I was thinking it cause like students, you're right in terms of like students come to college and you're, you know, you're leaving, you're leaving home, you're leaving sort of the, the situation that you're used to for the most part. And, and you're going to have to like, not reinvent yourself, but like reinvent your life and, and interact with people who you don't know. And you're going to, you know, they're going to be in your classes and in the dining hall and stuff like that. And so I guess part of what I was intrigued by in terms of the students thinking about how they feel towards people who don't think politically like them is like, how do they situate that in this new zone that they are inhabiting um, where they are creating their life? Um, it's, you know, it's not something your mom or dad or, or your, you know, relatives created for you. You are an independent, sort of an independent person creating this for yourself. And yet you're choosing to live like near the five churches or near the Starbucks and eat dinner with the people who are, are maybe like you. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. And again, this is one of those things that I think maybe since I started the project in 2015 and it was published in late 2020, things have changed a lot. It's it's only been a couple of years since the book came out, but it's been seven years since I got this data collected. So I, I also think that at the time, especially on our campus, we were not a political campus. We, we didn't have groups that focused a lot on politics, that stood on the quad and talked politics that would be even picking up on identity politics wasn't big and still isn't that large on our campus as it, as it is on some others maybe. So I think we're, we were a fairly apolitical campus, which is again a part of the reason I wasn't expecting to see very strong attitudes among this group because they are leaving home. They are coming here and running into people of different sorts. But it the political issues and conflicts haven't become salient in their day-to-day -day campus life at the time as much as they have now. There were some, and there would be flashpoints here and there where it would become an issue. And I think because they were so nervous at dealing with conflict, it just, it never got a strong foothold here as, as much as it might have on other campuses. It has gotten stronger in the interim. I can say that, that, that students are feeling more vocal, which is not a bad thing. I mean, that they're expressing their rights as citizens and as students on this campus. So that's a, that is good. I think it's important if they're going to start voicing their opinions and their beliefs and the, the, the science or facts behind what they're saying, then they, they might want to learn how to do it in a way that might be listened to by the other side, and they might want to learn how to listen to the other side. One of the things that I notice when I walk across campus that is sort of emblematic of this kind of approach, and, and it, I feel good about it every time I see it, is we have a campus ministry group that goes out on campus and stands and has a sign that says, 
uh, convince me about what you know about the Bible. And people will come up and start to challenge what the group stands for, what the particular denomination that they represent stands for. And they will have a, an argument about the Bible in a respectful manner. And they are each kind of using their Bible knowledge. And the students will end up laughing at each other and they will talk to each other. And they make friendships across a religious divide, which I find, you know, hopeful, at least. When it comes to politics, they seem to have a harder time doing that. And I'm surprised by that because it's always politics and religion you're not supposed to talk about. And religion used to be touchier than politics. So I think it's interesting that it's happening. Um, so I don't know if it's that when they come to campus, they, they are able to either still isolate into their own like-minded groups or that it's just not even, they're not connecting it to the political in a way that happens more obviously outside. As you've said, though, between then and now, with everything that's happened over the past few years, it's become much, it's hard not to connect it. And so I think they are, and I think their reaction has been to shut up. We saw the self-censoring kind of issue. Um, so I think that might be going on. I do think students are getting more vocal. And as I talk about in the concluding chapter, it seems like somewhere along the way, they haven't been taught how to be vocal in a constructive way and not just a demeaning way. And that's, I lament that in the end. And I feel like I'm part of the failure. I mean, you know, part of my job in the classroom is to get them to think critically about their own and others' opinions and to be able to articulate arguments in favor and against ideas. And so it, uh, it's, a, it's a challenge, as we all know. <laughs> It's it's done. It's definitely a challenge and you're absolutely right that I mean it's it's something that we try to foster, right? In terms of the conversations and the discussions. Um and you also, I mean, I I do this at least in some of my classes in political theory. I'm just like, okay, so ch challenge John Locke, like, you know, what do you buy? What do you don't what don't you buy? And and why? Um and then take that to like contemporary sort of situations. Um and but it's hard also to sort of take that lesson and draw it across, I think is also what you're finding with regard to the students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's absolutely the case. And like you, I try to introduce them to the theorists who are big on opinion diversity and knowing the other side. And so I, John Stuart Mill, you know, I go to Mill all the time. Uh, one of my favorite quotes of his is, is he who knows only his side of the case knows little of that. And I give that to them the first day of class and about every other day throughout. It's like, and I, I introduce to them, you know, the theories and political behavior. And I'll say, well, what do they have right? What do they have wrong? And they want a theory that's right. and could be this one. I was like, they all got a little right in them. Maybe they all got a little wrong in them. Maybe what do we take from all of them together? What's the best of each? What's the worst of each? And I think you're right that they, like many things we teach them, they don't kind of connect it to other domains of their lives. And I always try to explain to them that if you know how an internal combustion engine works, it doesn't matter if it's in a truck, a car, or on a motorcycle or a lawnmower, you ought to be able to diagnose the problem and critically understand why your mower won't start. And they don't seem to make that connection that, you know, if you can critically analyze Mill's argument or Rousseau's argument, um, you know, Converse's argument about attitudes and, and politics, then you ought to be able to critically analyze your own political ideas and others' political <laughs> ideas. Uh, they, they do get it eventually as they mature, I think, at least some of them. But it's, it's not a lesson you can go in and teach like you can teach them two and two is four. <laughs> and they have it once and for all. So, I mean, and granted, I mean, even we struggle with it. We are human and we do have emotions and we do have, you know, baggage that comes with us. Um, and so it is hard to do it. And I, so I can understand that they struggle with it. They're still learning to be adults. And most, I mean, what is all the science about the brain development says many of them are not yet there. So we need to recognize that. It's just frustrating. And I understand my parents' frustrations much better now. <laughs> 
So, so uh, Stacy, what are you working on now um, that this long project in just gestation and production um, is concluded and, and on the shelves at bookstores near you? <laughs> so, uh, as usual, when you finish a project this long, I, I worked on resting and, and not thinking about this project. So when you called me and asked me to do this, I was, I'm going to have to read that book again because I have purged all memory of that <laughs> from my brain. It's like when you finish your dissertation, you're done. <laughs> done. <laughs> so um, I, I hope to be able to replicate that study, at, like I said, on this campus at least, which I think I can get done because it's basically no cost other than energy, but also to replicate it across campuses and perhaps do a longer project, maybe an edited volume where we, those campuses that collaborated, we all contribute something like that or a one-off you know, article or something. Um, I, but I also have in the works right now with a couple of other students who are working on projects outside of classes that are related to classes, uh, looking at the, the idea of hatred. So the conclusion in the book, and I didn't expect to land on sort of the campus politics part, but that's where the book took me and where events of the day took me to, to focusing on the role of campuses in countering partisan hatred. I talk a little in the conclusion also about social identity theory and the idea that triggering an overarching identity might kind of um, cool off the, the cross-partisan animosities, but recent research has suggested, it, we used to always say trigger an American identity, but recent research suggests that triggering American, American means different things to the different sides, so that doesn't work. Uh, going back to your earlier question, part of maybe why campus doesn't see the, the heated debate and, and anger as much as because they do identify all as on our campus Bearcats. Right. We're right? pioneers. So, <laughs> or pioneers or lumberjacks or whatever they might be, right? So they all identify as the college or as the sorority or fraternity, which may be a little partisan diversity inside of there, which may be good, I think, for helping them engage with the other side. But the students and I were getting, were talking, and I was talking to a theorist friend um, about hatred in general, the, the concept of hatred and whether this thing we have is really actually partisan hatred or not, or is that not the concept we should be using to describe what's going on? So it's kind of stepping back to the theoretical conversation about what is hatred, what is partisan hatred. And it got me to thinking about an interest that I have had for a long time, and perhaps because I am one, about misanthropes. Um, people who are just haters of other people in general, not for any particular reason. They just don't like other people a lot, and for a variety of reasons. They may think that other people are failures. They may just feel uncomfortable in social situations. They may feel all sorts of things, right, morally superior or whatever. So I got to thinking about, about misanthropy and whether it's possible. I mean, misanthropy has always been seen as a negative attribute when it comes to democratic society, that misanthropes will be non-engaged citizens, perhaps even destructive citizens, um, that a good modern liberal democracy, pluralist democracy doesn't want misanthropes is kind of the traditional view. And there's been a, some empirical research that tried to look at misanthropic mindsets and whether they were less tolerant of free speech and things like that. So I started reading some of the empirical research and then jumped over to the, the philosophers, the moral philosophers who talked about uh, misanthropy and pluralism and moral pluralism and things like this. So I'm working on a project that, that I'm not sure will ever amount to anything, but it's, it's at least an idea I'm playing with right now and collecting data on. At the uh, upcoming Midwest conference, I hope to present a paper on the data that I'm collecting right now that kind of takes a look at and picks apart misanthropy into different forms of misanthropy. So there's an argument out in philosophical theoretical circles that not all misanthropes are alike, and some of them might actually be really good for society, particularly pluralist democracies like ours. Um, for instance, there's an argument that there might be two sorts of, of plural of um, misanthropists. One of them might be the activist misanthropist who does think people are failures, including themselves in general, and that we could do better, but we tend not to, and we may be incapable of perfection. But it's worth trying to make the world and people better, 
So these are your do-gooders. And they do a lot for society and in keeping society running in hard times. So they could be good for keeping democracy going. And then the what a group, um, one group of the philosophers or theorists calls the quietists, who are the people who I think they are described to being similar to, to true libertarians. I want to be left alone. I don't want a big overarching intrusive government, but I don't also want a big overarching community and neighbors. I'll leave you alone. You leave me alone. Let's do no harm to one another. Let's cooperate when we have to. Let's engage. Let's be supportive of the system and elect representatives that will support each side and let them compromise it out. But we basically build our fences and be left alone. (laughs) So I, I find that an intriguing idea. So the goal of this initial stage of this project is to collect a little data, come up with some measures, and some students have helped me develop them, and kind of see if we can tease out, are there these different sorts really out there that are theorized to be out there? And if so, are certain sorts more tolerant than others? That sounds so fascinating. And the activists actually more likely to vote, to contribute, to help a neighbor, to whatever, you know, are they actually the ones who hold less animosity toward the other side, whose feeling thermometers moderate across the parties? So that's kind of what I'm looking at. Um, I included the compromise measure, and that's one of my main tolerance measures. So you know, in three weeks, four weeks, I'll know whether there's anything to that idea or whether none of it's any good and the measures are horrible. But I look forward to some feedback at the Midwest over what I can manage to collect. So I kind of have in the back of my head, if that has any traction, that'll be the next large project that I do. Uh, But on the side, we've talked about the media follow-up project and and the follow-up to this one as well. And who knows what's in the news tomorrow that might get me excited about something. (laughs) Uh, When any of these ideas uh, produce themselves into books, I hope you will join me on the new books network to talk to, to talk about whatever you have written. Um, And I want to thank Stacey Elbig for joining me today to talk about angry politics, partisan hatred and political polarization among college students published by university Press of Kansas in 2020. I assume one can go to the University Press of Kansas website to purchase this book. Any place else you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, absolutely. The the, the press there at Kansas is great um, and really quick on the replies I've noticed. So that's good news. Beyond that, the few brick and mortar bookstores that are left around anymore I think the only really large one is probably Barnes and Noble, and they're I think they're carrying it both online and in their stores. Beyond that, all your normal online outlets will connect you up with a copy somewhere. Uh, if you're having trouble, email me, and I'll figure it out for you because you know I'd like you to read it and give me some feedback on it. So, thank you so much for joining me today, Stacy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>